I want to encourage you as you're taking your seats to open up your Bible or open up the Bible that's there in the pew to page 620. That's Daniel chapter 8. Or if you're using your phone, you can use the Bible app that's there. Go under events. You'll see Grace Lutheran Church pulsating on your screen. Press that and you'll open up right up to our scripture. Daniel chapter 8 this morning. If you weren't with us last week, we turned a corner in our study of the book of Daniel. With chapter 7, last week, we shifted in Daniel from reading stories about historical events that already happened by the time Daniel recorded them. So Daniel is writing about things that have already happened. With chapter 7, we move from that to engaging prophetic revelations yet to be fulfilled in Daniel's lifetime, where Daniel is writing about things that have yet to come. In fact, chapter 7 through 12 presents four visions in total where God pulls back the curtain for Daniel to glimpse, as we talked about last week, the overlap and interplay of earthly and heavenly realities. And the details of these four visions in the final chapters of Daniel is a style of writing called apocalyptic literature. And the word apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypse, which is found in the opening verse of the last book of the Bible. Apocalypse means revelation. Now, if you weren't with us, as we're going to dive in again this morning, while these visions and dreams that Daniel are given and, and writes down are very picturesque and steeped in symbolism, it's really important we understand these writings are not fiction. What again is described through these visions and dreams is the reality of what will be against the backdrop of what is eternal. And you'll notice that engaging our limited and linear minds, we tend to think in a linear fashion, Apocalyptic literature employs, these visions and dreams, employs metaphors to describe the indescribable, to, to convey confusing insights by referring to things that we recognize and we understand. And we're going to see it again today. Daniel, up to now, has proven a master at interpreting visions. In the first six chapters, that's what he's known for. But as he starts to have his own dreams and visions, he's baffled. And so are we. I mentioned this last week, and I want to lay this foundation again because it's so important. When we get into this kind of writing, this kind of stuff, apocalyptic literature, you're probably aware, and if you're not, you are going to be aware right now, that many battles have been and continue to be waged over writings like this in the Bible. Many battles have been and continue to be waged over deciphering the mystery of these revelations, the specific names, the dates, the times of what is to come. And time and time again in the history of the church, this has proven to be a misguided and a fruitless effort. It's going to be helpful as we read to remember these prophetic writings are transhistorical. And what that means is the fulfillment of these visions is not so much a one-time event per se as it is a series of concentric circles of fulfillment in history, moving towards an endpoint, but being fulfilled again and again. And so what I want to encourage you as we engage these writings is wherever you're coming from on this, rather than us wrestling over the differences in our interpretation of these visions, let's be united in gleaning from what the scriptures give us. And what it is, across the board, is a divine message of vigilance, assurance, and hope. As I said last week, it is the, the call to be attentive, to be encouraged, and to be engaged. And so with that sort of foundation, let's enter into Daniel chapter 8. If you have your Bible open, read along with me. It reads, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the cit citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, 
In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had been standing beside the canal and, had char- and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? For the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You're going to want to keep those Bibles open as we didn't read the whole of chapter 8, but I'll be referring back to both the parts we read and the parts that we didn't. I'm going to warn you, this sermon today is a heavy one. This sermon today is one where you're going to feel like you're drinking through a fire hose. This is one of those sermons where you may want to take notes. This is one of those sermons where you may want to have to, you're going to have to go back and listen to it again because there's a lot in here. In fact, when we talk about when we preach or study these apocalyptic writings. We're dealing with visions, and so that's part of the challenge, okay? Part of this is I'm going to be, every time we go through these chapters, taking you, as I did last week, to the vision where we take in the picture and we simply ask, what are we seeing? What are we seeing? And that's going to take some unpacking. And then the second part is going to be, what does it show us? What do we take away from what we're seeing? And fortunately, as you caught Uh, as we stopped reading, in each of these visions, there's always an interpretation, and it's out of that interpretation that we're going to build some from what the the application is, what we can take away from that. And I'm going to let you know right from the outset, because I really feel like I want you, I don't want to lose you, that the two things that we're primarily going to see, and and every week that we go through these visions, the themes that I give you, you really could apply to every chapter, because there's sort of these, these, these themes that keep coming up. But for today, we're going to talk about confronting the true nature of evil, And how do we endure that through the vision that Daniel is given here? But before we get to that part, let's talk about the picture, what we see. We're told, to give you some context, that Daniel's second vision, this is his second vision, occurs two years after his first one. So that is, as it says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. What's important about this is, when we were first introduced to Belshazzar back in chapter 5, Daniel was confronting him at the end of his reign where this is still in the start of his reign. So when Daniel is seeing these things, to give you some context, Babylon is still in power. Babylon, the Babylonian Empire is still thriving, okay? 
Now, as Daniel describes it, this second vision is, starts off as a bit of a little bit, a little bit of a magic carpet ride because he finds himself carried along. We're given this description to the important eastern city of Susa, and that today is in modern-day Iran. He's carried along about 155 miles east of Babylon to the province of Elam. So the point is, as he stands beside this, this river, this canal, is he's in the heart of a different realm from Babylon when all of a sudden he sees this massive ram with two horns. And this massive ram with two horns represents the rising power of the Medo-Persian Empire. Again, two horns, the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, if you were with us last week, when we looked at Daniel chapter 7, when, when he had the vision of the four beasts, that was a situation where we didn't have interpretation of those beasts. So I told you, we got to be careful not to get too caught up in speculation. And I gave you sort of a broader way to understand what Daniel saw. In this chapter, when I tell you that ram with two horns is the Medo-Persian Empire, I'm not speculating. Because in the second half of this chapter, if your Bible's still open, Daniel gets an angelic interpretation of the vision where the angel says, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. That's who that is. By the way, little sidebar here. If you have your Bible open, catch the name of the angel that tells Daniel about this vision. If you're looking down, you'll notice it's Gabriel, the same angel that appears to Mary, telling her that she is going to give birth to the Son of God. And I point this out to you to, to make a, a small, but I think very important point, is that as we go through these visions, one of the things you're going to notice, and it's also right here, is Daniel doesn't find reading the Word of God to be easy. And for many of us in the faith, isn't that one of our biggest struggles with the Bible, right? I don't read my Bible because it's too hard. I don't read my Bible because I open it up and I don't get it. Well, right here, right now, Daniel is getting the Word of God, and he goes, I don't get it. I don't get it. So you're not alone in that. Many people, myself included, find reading the Word of God not to be perfectly obvious or always easy. Daniel needed help here. I want you to see that. He needed help to understand the Word of God, and so God sent Gabriel. And why I'm pointing this out is because that's the same thing that happens in our lives. God doesn't send angels to us. We get something even better than that. We don't read the word of God alone or in isolation. God sends the Holy Spirit to help us understand. And this is why when you're reading your Bible, you should be reliant upon the Holy Spirit. And you may say, well, how do I do that? That's why prayer is so important to reading scripture, as well as just trusting as you press on, as you keep reading. And Daniel doesn't always get it right away that the Holy Spirit is working in the midst of your reading, in the midst of your study, and you will come to understanding. That's my little sidebar. So, Daniel sees this picture, and I want you to think about what he's seeing. Decades before the fall of Babylon, decades before he will experience that, Daniel is getting first a glimpse of the world power that will bring her down. And this ram that charges indiscriminately, you know, to the, to, in different directions, is indicating how the Medo-Persian Empire will have the might and the will to conquer in all directions and on all fronts. This ram is powerful until it encounters the goat. We're told as Daniel is kind of reflecting on what he sees, all of a sudden there's, there's something else comes into the picture. All of a sudden he spies a shaggy goat emerging from the west. And later on in the interpretation of the vision, he learns that this great goat that sports one horn, that's how it's described, represents the king of Greece. So now as we continue on in this vision, I told you this was going to be deep today, I'm going to show you how what Daniel is seeing, and as it's interpreted, lines up with what we know from history. We know that the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel is told the shaggy goat with one horn that appears represents the king of Greece. 
So let me put this together for you. What Daniel is seeing a few hundred years before his time is he is witnessing the rise of Alexander the Great. If you don't know your history, that was the king of Greece. Alexander the Great, the military genius tutored by Aristotle. And remember how he describes this shaggy goat. It's fast and furious, right? It's moving at such lightning speed, its feet never hit the ground. And this goat charges the ram. Well, that's exactly how Alexander the Great's rise to power as the king of Greece worked. Because this is exactly what took place. Alexander the Great masterminded a series of lightning conquests that led to a head-to-head battle that we're seeing a picture of between the ram and the goat. It was known in history as the Battle of Issus in 333 BC, where Alexander the Great defeated the armies of Darius III, where the mighty ram is overrun and gored by the goat. That's the battle where the Greek Empire rose and the Medo-Persian Empire fell. But the detailed and accurate nature of this prophecy gets even better. Even better. Because Daniel describes after this scene of, of carnage, right, that how this goat, at the height of its power, the goat, all of a sudden, the large singular horn of this goat breaks off. This lines up with history as well. Because if you don't know your history or remember it, Alexander the Great rose to power very, very fast. But only 10 years after conquering the known world, Alexander the Great, at the height of his powers, at age 32, died in Babylon in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Think about that for a second. Think about the fact that Alexander the Great died completely unaware that a man in the same city had seen and recorded a vision of his death nearly 300 years earlier. Think about that. Now, this is where the vision starts to get funky, right? I mean, it's kind of weird with rams and goats, but once again, all of a sudden it starts to get weird because we hear when this, the one horn that's on this goat falls off, all of a sudden Daniel sees this mutation where four conspicuous horns rise up in its place. But again, this lines up with what we know of history because when Alexander the Great died, when the horn broke off, he had no clear or natural successor. Once again, history records 40 years of struggle as Alexander's, count him, four generals whom he had appointed governors of his kingdom war with each other. And eventually, the Greek empire is salvaged as it's divided into four parts, each one ruled by one of these generals. Now, I'm not going to go further into that part of history. I'm going to take you, though, to one of those generals. The one of those four generals that's a particular note is Seleucus. His name was Seleucus, and he was in charge of northern Syria, Mesopotamia and regions to the east. And if you have geography in your mind at all, and if you grab a map, this lines up with the, in the four that come out, Daniel sees one horn of particular note, right? That's this. We pay attention to Seleucus because he's the one of them in verse 9 down here, out of which, out of his dynasty, or out of his reign, rose someone to cause even more great, even greater trouble than before. Now that person is not named in the interpretation, but is known in history. The name of that someone is Antiticus Epiphanes. Antiticus Epiphanes. He came from the line of Seleucus, from one of the four generals that followed Alexander the Great. His actual name was Antiochus IV. And he was known, he's known in history for specifically taking aim at the beautiful land of Israel and the host of heaven, God's people. Antiochus, whatever his name is, I can't pronounce the name. Antiochus, whose kingdom was centered in modern-day Syria, he actually designated his name, he changed his name to Epiphanes, which means magnificent. And he made this change because he began to view himself as a god. 
Now, what's really interesting is in our Protestant Bibles, we are missing, or we don't have, or we could say we shouldn't have, we won't debate that, some books that are in Catholic Bibles. And in Catholic Bibles, there are a couple of books that we don't have, and we can talk about the reasons for that another time, but one of the sets of books that's in there is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees, which details the history in between the Old and New Testament. And in 1st and 2nd and 3rd Maccabees, 1st and 2nd in particular, it's Antichus IV, Antichus Epiphanes, is described. His torment. He's infamous in the pages of that book for his ceaseless persecution of the Jews and his animosity towards the God of Israel. And what's described is initially Antichus seeks to seduce the Jews. His first attack is to seduce the Jews to adopt Greek culture, to adopt it through explicit government-driven cultural assimilation. That's his first line of attack. But when the majority of Jews resist becoming what was known as Hellenized, bowing down to Greek culture and influences, when the majority of Jews refuse to give up or compromise their faith, Antichrist plays hardball. And it's described in Maccabees and in other historical sources that it becomes exactly the way Daniel envisions it. Tens of thousands of Daniel's people are slaughtered and imprisoned by Antichrist. Daily worship sacrifices are outlawed by Antichrist. The temple is looted and desecrated as Antichrist sets up a statue of Zeus in the temple and then sacrifices a pig on the altar of the Lord, a mockery of God which later came to be known as the abomination of desolation. And eventually, as a little sidebar, it gets even worse as Antichrist actually makes human sacrifices in the temple of the Lord. So if I've lost you in the midst of all this history, here's the point. Everything that Daniel saw is exactly what came to pass. Everything that God said was going to happen is exactly what happened. And that's one of the gifts of prophetic revelation, to see that God is in control. But I told you, when we look at this picture, as we take all this in, the two things that we're going to look at today from this picture, and there's lots of things we can see, but the two things we're going to look at today are the nature of evil and how to endure evil. Because part of the function of apocalyptic literature, of visions like here in Daniel 8, is to force us to confront the true nature of evil. It forces us to look at things that we don't otherwise want to look at, to see in graphic detail darkness that we otherwise want to look away from. It's given to us so that it unmasks it for us. It unmasks this kind of evil for us so that we would learn to hate what is evil as well as to resist it. So what's the first thing we see in this picture in regards to the true nature of evil? The first thing that I want you need to see in this picture is the supernatural, the demonic nature of evil. We have all this imagery that Daniel describes, and I don't know if you caught it, of angels being defeated, the, the starry host of heaven being trampled down, of God's sovereignty being challenged and affronted. He put himself as if he were the commander of the Lord's army. All of this imagery that is pointing to a deeper reality, a, a reality behind the scenes of what we see. On the one hand, I mean, we, we identify it as I just have in history to a person. It's, there's a flesh and blood person behind this, Antichrist Epiphanes, right? But on the other hand, through the unveiling of this vision, Daniel is also getting a glimpse of what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, what he calls the principalities and powers. Do you remember that? When Paul says, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers— Daniel is seeing these invisible spiritual forces rebel, that rebel against God's ways and intentions, that act in opposition to the kingdom of heaven. 
We're talking about Satan. We're talking about other false and rebellious spirits that lie behind the evil we experience in this life. The first element of what we see about the true nature of evil is that there is a larger spiritual dynamic to this, forces that we don't otherwise see that are in opposition to God. My friends, what we see is this world is not a playground. This world is a battleground. Spiritual warfare is real. And we don't just see talk of it in visions like Daniel has. We also see it in visions given to Isaiah, to Ezekiel. We see Paul and Peter in other letters reference the reality of a broader cosmic drama that's taking place in their letters. And if that's not enough, we witness the reality of spiritual warfare firsthand in the ministry of Jesus himself. When he encounters the demonic, those being persecuted and oppressed by other forces. These forces opposed to God And these forces that are opposed to God, what we would call the demonic, they need to work through earthly vessels. And so that's why we have this picture of one historical figure of Antiquitous Epiphanes. And and from the descriptions of this little horn, that's what he is, the little horn, this, from the description of, notice how how this Antiquitous is summarized, this description of spiritual attack is summarized. What is spiritual attack about? about? It assaults the worship, the truth, and the people of God. It attacks the sacrifices, the truth of the word of God, and it attacks the people of God. And this is in absolute contrast, this picture of attack, of attacking the worship, the truth, and the people of God is in absolute contrast to the way, truth, and life of Jesus. And that's why when we look at this picture, Scripture will later say that is a picture of the Antichrist. That's the Antichrist. The Antichrist being the complete contrast and opposite to the way, truth, and life of Jesus Christ. Now, when, we st- when I say the word Antichrist, when we start to see pictures like this in Daniel 8, some of you come from traditions. Some of you may even come from your own study of Scripture where you think that when we say Antichrist, that we believe in one future Antichrist. And, and again, there's been a lot of books that have been sold, a lot of movies that have been made based on this whole idea that the Bible says there's this one future Antichrist and he'll rise up. And I mean, we're around Halloween, all kinds of scary movies made about this. But the scriptures are repeatedly clear, not that there's one future Antichrist. The scriptures are repeatedly clear there have been and there will be many Antichrists. You need to hear that. Many Antichrists. Antichrist Epiphanes, Nero, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, there are going to have been and will be many world leaders who will claim and assert power in defiance of God, who will seek to control and profane the worship of the Lord, who will obscure and deny the truth of God's word, who will persecute and put believers to death. So part of confronting the true nature of evil is recognizing there's this larger spiritual dynamic and that, there, that oftentimes this is going to get, um, be a part of a figure who's part of an empire. But part of contr- confronting the true nature of evil is confronting the full truth about evil. Because even if we acknowledge the awareness of many antichrists, it can be very easy for us to look at evil the bad people as being out there. You with me? Oh, those, the bad people. We got to look out for the, the Antichrist, the bad people. But what we can't overlook in this vision that Daniel is given is that the manifestation of evil that we see in these visions, the manifestation of evil we see in Antichrist is not something that we are immune or removed from. You guys with me? You tracking with me here? 
We're all here, I hope, because we believe, as the scriptures say, that we're all sinners. None is righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of, of God. We are all sinners. If that's what we believe, then you need to understand, given that we're all sinners, evil is not just a thing that's out there. The capacity for evil exists in every human heart. Because we're broken people, and broken people that we are, apart from the grace of God, we are each susceptible to the influence and corruptive nature of evil, the spiritual forces opposed to God. We can get so fixated on the degrees of evil, and clearly when we look at these historical figures, these antichrists, the degree of evil is off the charts. But in our obsession with the degree of evil, the true nature of evil goes back to the seedbed in every human heart. Because we are apart from the grace of God, we are susceptible to the influence and corruptive nature of evil, to those spiritual forces opposed to God. Now, before we go too far with that, to balance this, in acknowledging this greater spiritual reality, we can't put all the responsibility for evil on those principalities and powers either. What I'm saying is, we can't keep saying, the devil made me do it. That used to be like a really big thing of, oh, the devil made me do it. And that's also where spiritual attack and spiritual warfare often goes wrong because we're blaming the devil and demons for every single little thing that happens. But the reality is, in the midst of this larger reality that can influence and corrupt us, we still have free will. And we need to recognize our own free will and our own choices for good or for evil. And to help you to see the, the human side of this, to see how this isn't something you know, larger, than, larger than life, but it comes back to the human heart. If you look down in verse 25 in this, in this vision that Daniel's given here in chapter 8, verse 25, look at how he describes the rise of evil. He writes, by his cunning, he's referring to Antichrist here, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. This is a very, very human description of evil rising. I mean, you have this spiritual dimension that we talked about earlier, but this is very, very deep, close to home. My point is, when he talks about cunning and deceit, and in his own mind he shall become great, can we all acknowledge that deceit and the desire for superiority are common to each and every one of us? It's part of our impaired condition, is it not? Is it, it's part of our sinful nature to want, in some cases we get so obsessed with it, we think we need to find our identity and our worth in being better than other people. Right? And, if, and if, if you're disagreeing with me or think I'm, I'm, I'm off on this, take a moment, just look back on your week and think about in this last week, think about your thoughts. Think about your words. Think about your actions. And specifically, think about the, your thoughts, your words, and your actions towards those whom you perceive negatively. Negatively. Because we, got, we can be influenced and tempted by all kinds of things around us, but in those moments, in, the, in that moment, to the people who we perceive negatively, we make the choice to entertain those thoughts, don't we? We make the choice to use those words. We make the choice to take those actions. And it can be so easy for us to cross a line. Sometimes it's hard to know where it is. In our, right, in our outrage, in our frustration with another person, it can be so easy to draw a line and say, it's us versus them. It can be so easy and it's hard sometimes to know where this line begins and ends when we begin to see ourselves superior to those who try to position themselves as superior or better than us. You get what I'm talking about? You're upset, you're morally outraged, you're, this person's putting themselves as high and mighty, they're better than me, or they're, and you know what? They're not better than me, I'm better than they are. Pot just called the kettle black. We can so easily deceive ourselves 
into believing that foolishness, that immorality, their irresponsibility is their problem and not mine. My friends, when we get angry and outraged, we must be careful not to become self-righteous. Because as we look down and as we judge those around us for their lies, for their scandals, for their cover-ups, for their misdeeds, we need to be mindful of the log in our own eye. And I don't know if you're tracking with me at all, but this seems very, very relevant once again in light of our political climate right now. I see a lot of talk. I see a lot of, <laughs> of engagement that frankly is evil and it needs to be called out for what it is. And I'm not just talking about either candidate and I'm not trying to push you one way or the other of how they're conducting themselves. I am seeing people who are in their, whatever their rationale is, who are demonizing followers of the other candidate to a, to a point where all of a sudden, are we losing the fact that we all have to live together after this election is over? Do we recognize we all have to go on being together after this election is over? Do we recognize that it can be very, very easy in our vilifying of the other person, whether it's the candidate or those who are going to vote for that person, that in our vilification of that person, all of a sudden we can turn around and find we've become the very thing that we're complaining about, that we're critiquing. That is the seedbed of evil. When we vilify the other person, we often become what we attack. Now, I don't want you guys to misunderstand me here this morning in this very deep part of this sermon, I am not saying that we're all antichrists, <laughs> okay? I'm not saying we're all antichrists. What I am saying is we all think, we all speak, and we all act in ways that are anti to Christ. And that is the seedbed out of which evil takes hold and the virus of sin spreads. Sin and evil take root and flourish when we fail to honor our essential interdependence, when we throw compassion away, when we divest ourselves of personal responsibility, not my problem for those around us. When we divest ourselves of personal responsibility, especially when we know they are in trouble, whether we're to blame or not. My friends, Jesus, when he summarizes the law of God, and that's one of those moments we remember, right, in the gospel, when Jesus summarizes the law of God, the, what we call the great commandment, does he or does he not make it very clear we're called upon to account for the well-being of those around us? We're called upon to account for the well-being of those around us. And when we let go of that, that's where evil begins to rise. You know what really gets me throughout these chapters, especially this one, is, you know, is, that, is that Daniel, as he confronts the true nature of evil, like we're looking at the picture too, it, this revelation rocks him to the core. I mean, we're actually told that after this, he's ill for several days. He's so overwhelmed by what he sees, he's ill. And that really gets to me. My, it makes a statement to me because I think about Daniel, and Daniel is a guy who's seeing this vision, and I understand it's otherworldly, but when he's seeing the darkness, when he's seeing the true nature of evil, this is not a guy who's naive or inexperienced. He's well into his life, right? And, and also, think about it. He's been involved in government service all his life. This is a guy who knows how corrupt people can be. This is a guy who's seen how out of control things can get, and yet he's taken back by the wickedness and brutality of the evil that men can do. And we need to be equally confronted with that evil that begins in the human heart. Sin and evil 
are, fact, are found in acts of harm that are obvious to our sense of God-given morality, and sin and evil are also found in acts of neglect. neglect. Sometimes sin and evil come by way of complicity, and sometimes sin and evil come by way of apathy. But either way, complicity or apathy, we witness evil and we perpetuate sin. And I, I'm hitting this hard, and I know this is dark stuff, and I know this is tough stuff, because if we don't confront the true nature of evil, then we can't even begin to take in the other thing that Daniel sees here, which is suffering. Because, you see, to understand suffering, we need to understand that when we give ourselves to evil and sin, we have attached ourselves to something we cannot control, and that always will lead to suffering. Suffering is a result of evil. And we experience suffering in one of two ways. We either experience suffering that comes from giving ourselves over to evil. We either experience suffering from what we do to ourselves or do unto others, directly or indirectly. Or we experience suffering that comes from resisting or standing against evil. All of the suffering in our lives is not because of evil that we've done. Much of the suffering in our lives is because of the evil done unto us when we've tried to stand against or resist evil. But it comes in both directions. And through these visions, Daniel is getting a very sobering picture, isn't he? That things are not going to be easy for his people. That getting home from Babylon is not going to be a 70-year journey. If you add up the history that Daniel sees, getting home from Babylon, not just in a geographical sense, but in a spiritual sense, is not going to take 70 years. It's going to take four centuries of foreign domination. Did you hear that? Four centuries of foreign domination. And we need to confront the true nature of evil, both as it is out there and in here, because as followers of Christ on the other side of history, we need to remember that suffering is a part of our season of waiting as well. Suffering is a part of our season of waiting as well. As we live in anticipation of the kingdom, the complete fulfillment of God's initiative to redeem and reconcile this world, we are going to suffer for our faith. Are you hearing me, church? Because we live at a time when many people in the church somehow think that this is not supposed to be happening, that we're not supposed to be suffering that we're, we're supposed to be immune to the evil that's in this world, the sufferings that's taking place. And I, there's no scriptural basis for this understanding. Jesus told us to expect suffering. He said, in this world, we will have trouble. In this world, we will have trouble. We're going to have trouble because of the evil that we continue to perpetuate in our own lives, that we, where we don't surrender to God, so we do unto ourselves. And we're going to suffer because of when we stand up and resist evil, because evil is trying to press against that. It's trying to fight back. We are going to suffer in this life. And again, to bring this home, what Daniel sees here mirrors the vision that the Apostle John sees and records in the book of Revelation, just to bring this full circle for you. And if you haven't been in Revelation for a while, very similarly to Daniel, John sees the vision of the martyrs, right? Those who have suffered and even died for the faith and witness of the kingdom as they're gathered around the throne of God. Evil is real. Spiritual warfare is real. Human responsibility and participation in evil is real apart from the grace of God. Suffering is a result of it. And as we see that, you're probably at the, at the point in this vision and in this sermon when you're asking the same question that somebody asks in the midst of Daniel's vision. The same question that gets asked in the throne room of God is there's this vision of the martyrs. It's the question that all God's people ask as they confront the reality of evil and the suffering that follows. And it's this, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Okay, we're looking at it. Okay, we're knee-deep in it. Yeah, all right. 
no one wants to acknowledge evil. No one wants to admit we're going to suffer. But then if we do, how long, O oh Lord? How long until we're free? How long until you deliver us once and for all from evil? How long, O oh Lord, until you make all things new? Until you wipe away every tear? And there is no more crying, no more pain, no more death, and only peace everlasting. How long, O oh Lord? Until the prayer is answered. Until it is on earth as it is in heaven. And here in the vision of chapter 8, Daniel is given an answer. God says it will take 2,300 days. Uh, I think we're past 2,300 days, right? Right? And this is where it starts to get interesting. Because when that number is given 2,300 days, the... There's two ways to read this. And again, this is one of those places where many are tempted to try to, to calculate and circle a date on the calendar. Others are looking for a more symbolic understanding of this number. It's probably likely, probably likely that there's two points here. The first being he's talking about when the specific persecution under Antiquitus Epiphanes will end. But there's a broader point that's being made whether this number is literal or symbolic. The broader point in God's response to how long is that though there's not an immediate end to our troubles, they will not drag on forever. The point that we need to see is that the days of our suffering are numbered. Are numbered. And that's so important because once you understand that the days of our suffering are numbered, then all of a sudden we can approach suffering differently. While we wait, in other words, our suffering does not have to be in vain. Our suffering, our vulnerability, our weakness, our pain can, in our waiting, lead us to turn from trust in our own strength to living by faith in the Lord's power. To trust the Lord's power rather than in our own strength. The Apostle Paul expresses it a little bit differently in Romans chapter 5 when he writes this. Think about what Paul writes here in light of this picture that Daniel is seeing and we're looking at. Paul writes, We also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Our perseverance, our endurance as the people of God rests not in making the best of the present situation. That's not perseverance, not, that's not endurance. We'll just make the best of it. Our perseverance, our endurance as the people of God rests in anticipating and abiding in the truth of our Father's eternal covenant promise to put things right. To put things right. In verse 25 here in chapter 8, it's told to Daniel this way. Catch this. Verse 25, it first describes Antiochus Epiphanes. He will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Catch the last part of this verse. Yet he will be destroyed. And the last part is even more important. But not by human power. My friends, for those who walk by faith, for those who walk by faith, violence, oppression, persecution, even death itself will not define their lives. People of the cross, as Paul writes, find their character in Christ. People of the cross find their character in the God who knows our suffering and bears it personally. People of the cross find their character in the God who is present and active through our suffering to bring us out the other side. I'm going to give you a nugget this morning and I'd write it down. And it's one way to think about prophecy, apocalyptic writing. Prophecy is the story of faith told to us before it happens. 
Prophecy is the story of faith told to us before it happens. It feeds our faith by helping us to see that we endure, we persevere, not by our own strength, but by the strength of God. Though we may not understand everything that's happening in our world today, and in any period of history, ask yourself, has anyone fully understood what was happening at that time? Though we may not understand everything that's happening in the world, on the world scene, what we have in writings like this, pictures that God gives us, revelations, we have the ability to look back and recognize that the events described to Daniel, to Ezekiel, to John, the events described in these visions were in fact fulfilled very precisely in history. And that assures us that God is in control. That God is in control. And that's the hope. The hope of God's people everywhere. My friends, the hope of God's people everywhere whether you're struggling in the 6th century B.C. with Daniel, whether you're abused in the 2nd century B.C. under Antiochus IV, whether you're being persecuted by the Roman Empire in the 1st century A.D., or whether we are being threatened and executed today by terrorists in the 21st century, the hope of God's people everywhere is the God who is working it out, who is bringing good out of evil. And I can see it in some of your eyes. You're sitting there and you're like, yeah, I hear that, man, but it sure seems like it's, yeah, I don't know. It's taking a long time. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's getting better. I don't know. You're sitting there and you have that, some of you have that glazed over look in your eye. There's the preacher telling us Jesus wins. If you doubt, not what I say is true, but what the scriptures proclaim what God declares, what he reveals in visions like these to Daniel. If you doubt this morning, and I get it, if you're jaded, let me tell you, look no further than the cross and the resurrection. If you doubt, if you've forgotten, if you're falling asleep, look to the cross and the resurrection. My friends, think about it. We together have confronted the true nature of evil, and it's been a hard look. We've sat in the reality that out of that evil comes suffering. But look to the cross and think about this. Out of the ultimate act of evil, out of the ultimate act of evil, the very worst thing that has happened in human history, the unrighteous murder of the Son of God, the supreme example of innocent suffering, out of the ultimate act of evil, God delivered the ultimate good. Out of the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, God did the best thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. He saved sinners like you and me. He saved sinners like you and me and began to reconcile a broken universe. That's the ultimate vision. That's the ultimate vision. That's the vision of the gospel that we can't lose sight of in the midst of all these other visions. Because when this is our focus, when we look to Christ, when we look and see, as we talked about last week, as Daniel saw in chapter 7, the Son of Man seated victoriously at the right hand of God, when this is our focus, when we look to Christ, we don't have to fear evil. We can face trouble, even death, and endure. Think about it. Do you remember Stephen? Do you remember Stephen, the first martyr of the church? Do you remember Stephen in the book of Acts? Do you remember that moment at the end of his powerful and courageous defense of the gospel before the Sanhedrin? Do you remember that moment as he was about to be crushed, stoned to death by their murderous, murderous rage? What does Daniel, was Stephen all of a sudden cry out? He sees that vision of Jesus seated at the right hand of God, and it's that vision that enables him to face and endure death. It's that vision of the cross and of the resurrection that enables Daniel, Stephen, and countless others through the ages to endure unto glory. 
We just need to keep our eyes on the cross and the resurrection. And that may sound easy, but it's been hard for us as the church. We often take our eyes off the cross. We wear the cross. We point to the cross. We make crosses, but we take our eye off the cross. Think about it. Look back and ask yourself, when have been the moments of the church's greatest influence? Ask yourself, whatever history you know, when have been the moments of the church's most powerful witness and impact on the world? When? It has not been. Our greatest influence and our most powerful witness has not been when we have been visibly mighty and majestic as the church. Our greatest witness, our greatest influence was not the age following Constantine, when Christianity became imperialistic and the world was forced by the Holy Roman Empire to bow before the name of Jesus. That was not one of our finer moments. Our greatest witness, our most powerful influence was not during the days of the medieval popes when Christ's vicar in Rome drew and held hostage people's faith in Jesus through the use of power. No different than a secular monarch on earth. The church's greatest influence and most powerful witness was not in the last heyday of the 19th century when the gospel of Christ became artificially fused with what was known as humanistic optimism. When all of a sudden we started telling ourselves in the church that the gospel is that we're the architects of our own destinies. That the kingdom of God is some utopian, inevitable paradise that's built on the momentum of human progress. No. The church's greatest witness and lasting influence on the conscience and soul of this world when we have led people to Christ has come when we have judged last and confessed and repented first. When we have leveraged love and balanced it with truth. When we, as followers of Jesus, have been willing to be crucified with Christ and to count all else but loss for his sake for the reclamation of those who do not know and have not heard, that is when we have made the greatest impact and the most lasting influence. God has made that impact and influence through us. Because, my friends, the cross is the line in the sand that changes everything. Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil we cannot, we must not give in or give up or give ourselves over to evil. To do so is not only to find ourselves in darkness, but to do so is to find ourselves on the losing side of a larger unfolding cosmic drama, the outcome of which is not in question. The reclamation of creation has begun, my friends. It's just not yet finished. Forces of opposition, forces of evil are out there and they resist, but victory is certain. God is saving this world. The sign of victory is not the horn that declares the battle is about to begin. No, the sign of victory is the tomb that stands empty declaring the war has already been won. Because the final word is not had by the ram or the goat. The final word is the word of the lamb. The word of the Lamb. When Jesus bursts onto the scene 500 years after Daniel, John the Baptist points to Jesus and he doesn't declare, look, the Ram of God who charges and knocks everyone into submission. No. He points and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. My friends, let us walk with courage and perseverance let us not bow down before the way of the beast, the ram or the goat, but let us follow the one who has triumphed. 
the one who has secured our future, the one who sustains us through this prolonged season of exile and suffering, the one who gives us the joyful work of being a part of his kingdom. Let us together trust and follow the way of the Lamb. Amen.